I'm going to read it all, and then we're going to come back and kind of play with it a little bit, and I'm going to walk you through it. Chapter 5, Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn them on, uh, like me, or you can open them up. Either way, uh, either way, whatever easiest for you. I tend not to like having digital Bibles, but they become very easy, and, and it's very hard for me on the uh, having like a music stand or a pulpit or anything to ever like lay out a Bible and lay out a whole sermon because I have to go through notes. And I'm just not the guy who wants to preach off of something digital yet, so I still type everything out and, and, and go that route. I just love paper. Hmm. To the death of the trees, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, and I do, I think, like I said, I, there's not enough room. I need like a pulpit that's like this wide and I have the Bible and just step over on one side. Side A for the Bible, side B for the sermon. Yeah, yeah. Ooh, I could do that. That would be awesome. So I'm going to talk from that. I'm going I'm to read through it. I'm going to go through it. But before we get there, let me, I, I want to ask you a few questions. Last week, I challenged everybody is how much you really know about Jesus. I asked you to, I asked you to challenge yourself by asking questions. Can I tell you, I have been shunned by more pastors and shunned by more preachers than anything just for asking questions. I have been kicked out of a lot of things just for asking questions. I have been told to shut up and keep quiet, go away. I've done a lot, I mean, just for asking questions. And the irony to me is not that they really, most of them is usually because they don't have the answer. And rather than have the answer, you ever told that to your kid? Come on, be honest. Like, well, why? Just shut up and go. Do what I tell you to do. Listen, preachers aren't much different. And you start asking questions about the Bible and you start asking questions about why they believe what they believe, uh, people get uncomfortable. And you know what you find out? People don't really know what they believe. They've taken on face value of what they believe. Well, I believe this because this is what I heard. And since I've never looked it up to to fact check it, it must be true. After all, everything that comes out of a man's mouth must be true. Yeah, right? Right? So come on. What is your picture of Jesus? Have you ever thought about the simple things that make him who he is? How much time have you given to just thinking about Jesus, the character of him, the nature of him, his humanity? And the things that make him so approachable. What happens when you read the scriptures? Are you reading a history book? Are you reading something that's scripted? Are you able to envision the words as you read them and place yourself there? I mean, that's supposed to be the wonder of any book, right? That when you read it, it like takes you to another place. I don't know about you, but I've read the Chronicles of Narnia. I've read The Hobbit. I've read The Lord of the Rings. And when you read them, uh, this is why we tend to say the movies just don't do the books good. I mean, it's a great book. How do you ruin that book? Right? Books take us to another place. They, we're allowed to see ourselves through the writer, see ourselves through the main character, and really understand and see the story play out. Do we, are we able to do this with the Bible? I hope so. Because it's the thing that's going to make you ask questions. It, it's what makes us challenge our surroundings, the things that we see in church, outside of church, in people's lives, not in people's lives. It's what makes our life transform and change. So last week I started presenting to you the idea of to start asking questions. So listen, it's not going to intimidate me. If you've got a question, maybe it'll challenge me to go learn and find something new. Is that so bad? Would that be so wrong? Ask questions. And today I'm going to provoke you with questions and thought, not to confuse you, but to challenge how you look at the Gospels and how you look at the Bible. And more pointedly, how you look at Jesus, because I want you to search him out for yourself. I want you to know him. 
I want, I want you to search out your own heart. What do you believe? Why do you believe the way you do? What have you been told about Jesus? How much of that is biblical truth and how much of that is human perception? What's the difference? The heart is deceitfully wicked and constantly desires everything to cater to it. In contrast to the Bible, it's a two-edged sword, a cornerstone, a bedrock foundation that isn't malleable or adjustable and it will not be moved. But your opinion's moved all the time. So what is truth? What is that out there for you? And as we, as we tackle the book of Luke and as we tackle from one story to the next about Jesus, what are your perceptions of Jesus and how are they different than what you see in the church? How are they different than what you see in the world? How are disciples different on, listen, at ground zero compared to now? How is it different? What's it look like that's so different? You should be asking yourself those questions. Those are valid questions. And people who don't want to answer you are people who don't know. And rather than saying they don't know, which is humility, by the way, they're prideful and just say, well, you're just trying to cause dissension or division. Listen, some of the greatest men in my life have been the people I wanted to hit in the face. They have challenged me. Hey, I can tell you, man, I've had some, uh, we're going we're gonna to talk a little bit about coincidence and providence a little bit today, and I'm going to challenge you there. I'm not going to give you the answer of where, where I stand or, or anything like that, although it's, it'll probably be alluded to because I can't help who I am. But I can tell you that there are things that I have learned along the way, and I was so sure, and I met a couple of Bible students from Dallas Theological Bible you know, Seminary up there, prestige school. I mean, very awesome to be able to get into it. Very, very, very cool place that at one time I really wanted to go to. Uh, and these guys came up to me and, and really presented me a couple of questions. And as they began to talk to me about this subject of providence and coincidence and all these things, I remember at one time going, that is blasphemous what you're saying. And we're like, well, it's biblical. Well, wait a minute. And I was like, I'm going to show them. I'm going to read up all about this thing and I'm going to show them how wrong they are. Baptist, I swear, should have known, should have known, right? Two years later and a lot of study, man, found out I'm Bapticostal. They were right. God, you know how hard it was to say, okay, you guys are right. And then to come home and I told my wife, she's like, that's crazy, that's blasphemous. Maybe it's true. Well, God's going to have to open my ears because I can't believe that. Six to eight months later. Man, it's like the veil's been pulled back. I can't believe how true that was. I'm like, I know. I know. Can I tell you, man, I've had a lot of moments like that that have caused me great humility. To have to go back and admit, wow, I was wrong. Thank you, Jesus, for not letting me preach that for years and years and years. Thank you. Thank you for opening my eyes to the truth. I have found that if you will search for the truth and you will begin to ask questions searching for the truth, God will bring it to you. And I also can tell you this, that when you discover it, a new truth. It is as if God pulls back the veil and lets you see a side of him that you've never seen. And you will feel, you want to feel special in the Lord's eyes. It is the one time where you feel like, wow, God, you've shown me something very few people get to see or maybe go their whole life and never believe. That's crazy, God. I mean, it's crazy. A uh, very monumental moment in my life. Uh, but it took, man, it took a lot of study to get there. A lot. And a lot of questions. And somebody had to challenge me, and I had to be a jerk. <laughs> Eating crow doesn't taste good, but it's changed my life. It's changed my life. So let's start. Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Say amen if you're there. Amen. All right. I'm going to read through, and then I'm going to go through it little by little and pick it apart. 
One day as Jesus was preaching on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, great great crowds pressed in on him to listen to the word of God. He noticed two empty boats at the water's edge for the fishermen had left them and were washing their nets. Stepping into one of the boats, Simon, or Jesus asked Simon, its owner, to push it out into the water. So he sat in the boat and taught the crowds from there. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, now go out where it's deeper. Let down your nets and catch some fish. Master, Simon replied, we worked hard all last night and didn't catch a thing. But if you say so, I'll let the nets down again. And this time their nets were so full of fish, they began to tear. A shout for help brought their partners in the other boat, and soon both boats were filled with fish and on the verge of sinking. When Simon Peter realized what had happened, he fell to his knees before Jesus and said, Oh, Lord, please leave me. I'm too much of a sinner to be around you. For he was awestruck by the number of fish that they had caught, as were the others with them. His partners, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, were also amazed. Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on, you'll be fishing for people. And as soon as they landed, they left everything and followed Jesus. Now, I'm going to just start it with these things, these little pieces where I just grab from the scriptures, and then I just want to present you some thoughts this morning. Because this is, honestly, this is the way my brain works when I start looking at scripture. I begin to ask questions to God. Like, for instance, do you ever notice the scripture says the crowds pressed in on him? You ever notice the crowds always need Jesus? It's never a single person. It's more likely always a crowd when we read about Jesus. His preaching brought insight to the spiritually blind. His touch brought sight to the physically blind, and always his preaching inspired and amazed people. The physical side of Jesus brought hope to the people. Now, there's a couple of reasons why, obviously for what he could do. But he also came to the afflicted and needy as one who appeared ordinary and approachable. He wore a peasant's robe, not a priestly garment. Big difference, guys. He would be more likely to sit next to you in church than in front of you where I'm standing. Welcome to Jesus. I know we don't see him like that, but it's more likely. How contrast our ministers are today in the sight of Jesus' ministry. He would appear in our society as nobody we would recognize. There would be no special features that would make him more handsome than anyone else. Matter of fact, Isaiah 53 uh, verse 2 prophesies there was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. So he's nothing special. He's an ordinary person sitting in the crowd who looks like everybody else. Sounds racist, I know, but it's not. Then what are we attracted to? I mean, if if Jesus is so great, but he doesn't look great, what are we attracted to? I mean, you can't be attracted to his physical appearance. It says he's not attractive. There's nothing majestic. There's nothing royal to him at all. He comes in a peasant's robe. I mean, how many homeless people are you going, man? That guy just preached me the word of God. Most of us don't look at people, the common people, and think like that. We look towards pastors and priests and people who we've elevated to stature. And yet Jesus doesn't come from any of that. The crowds aren't attracted to his spiritual appearance, so what are they attracted to? What are you attracted to? Do you even know? What attracts you to Jesus? I'm going to leave that there. Have you ever noticed that Jesus always appears to be as one of us? He's always simple. Always easily approachable. You know, it's, nobody's intimidated to come up and talk to him. You ever realize that? How many times has somebody been intimidated to come up to a pastor or a priest or someone who we think is an authority or spiritual authority? They're like, man, these days, man, I, I, and I remember because I've spent more time in the pew than I ever have in a pulpit. And I'm telling you, I always thought it was, man, I want to go hang out with the pastor. I want to pick his brain. I want to talk to him about this or talk to him about that. Da, da, da. But, man, the one person I think if, if, if that, that would honestly make time for us, I think Jesus is the kind of guy that would make time for us. 
He's simple. He's easily approachable. No one ever fears him. Come on, man. They had no problem going and beating him up. They had no problem chasing him to the edge of the cliff where it says he escaped out amongst them. They had no problem thinking, hey, we physically want to harm this guy. He didn't come to us in the form of some kind of spiritual authority, although we never doubt that he has a spiritual authority. We always picture Jesus as the most approachable person. He breaks all the Levitical molds of being separate from the people. By the way, Leviticus, man, if you go back and read Leviticus, man, the priests are totally separate, man. They don't, they don't have possessions, by the way. They're not allowed to have things and own things because God, the 10% that everybody gives in is, is set aside for them because their gift or the thing that they're given, when all the tribes were given something, that's what I love about the Leviticus thing. God says, here's what I'm giving to you, me. So they're set aside and they're, they're deemed like special because God's portion has gone to them. And yet Jesus doesn't, he breaks that mold. He lived in the world, and yet his heart was always set apart from it. Completely, fully invested into the world, and yet walked as if one who wasn't even from here. The quality and character of God is what is attractive, I believe. His deep compassion for the sick, the oppressed, the broken, they kind of draw at us. Because we all know what it's like to feel that. They had seen marvelous signs and wonder. He set free the demon-possessed. He healed members of their families. He walked among them as a lowly commoner, as one for us and for them. And he's on our side, and yet we're faithfully trusting his character cannot be corrupted. David said God was rich in mercy. His hands handed out mercy by the truckloads. Well, God, I need forgiveness. All right, here it is. No questions asked. Just have it. I wonder, I think a lot of times, and I'm just kind of talking out loud, I think a lot of our guilt comes from all the times that we've used God's mercy against him. Because we know he's forgiving. We know he's full of mercy. So we go like, well, I'm going to do this for a while. And we know it's wrong. But we know God is so loving and so forgiving, so we take advantage of it. Just like we take advantage of our mom and dad. Just like we take advantage of our friends. Come on, man. Nobody's going to stand you up, be late, consistently do all these things bad like a family. Like, man... Hire a family member. Hire, hire, you know, like, I love my wife. My wife's going to be late everywhere we go. Now, I'm going to tell you, what do you think is going to happen? if I, I'm going to put my foot down. She's going to kick me right out from underneath my foot. That's what's going to happen. <laughs> she takes advantage of what? My love and compassion and my mercy for her. Now, listen, doesn't mean Jesus doesn't love us, but I'm going to tell you right now, I think most of the guilt you feel comes from how much you take advantage of God's mercy and God's grace. Doesn't mean he doesn't give it to you or pour it out. But I think a lot of that is self-created self because we take advantage of it. We see that as a weakness at times, and we take advantage of it. The Scripture says, if we move on, that Jesus notices two boats. Now, question I have for you this morning, when we look at the two boats, do you still believe in coincidence, or do you believe in providence? If you believe in coincidence, then when you read this passage, you see that Jesus could make two choices and he just happens to choose Simon's boat. Or it's possible that both boats are actually Simon's, and it was all by chance that they're meeting. Now, if you believe in providence, then regardless of whether there are two boats or, you, or just one, you believe that Peter was chosen by Jesus, as Paul would say before the foundations of the world. You would believe Jesus intentionally picked Simon's boat and that this meeting is not by chance at all. So what do you believe? Do you believe in coincidence here in this moment, or do you believe by, but do you believe by providence? And listen, uh, uh, it's important. <laughs> However you answer this will tell a lot about how you read the Bible and how you view the ministry of Christ. 
Seriously, do you think Christ just acted like whatever happened this day is what's going to happen? Or did he act by providence, fully believing that every step he took was ordained by God? Are you here by accident or are you here by coincidence? Or are you here by providence? Are you supposed to be here because God has declared it to be so? Was Christ so determined to have you that he placed people in your life that would lead you to this place in this time? How you view this can determine how you pursue God. Some people believe that their own will has driven them to choose Christ and this Christian life. They believe it's by their own free will that this has all happened and it's all taken place because they've simply chosen it. After years of studying in my heart, I'm going to leave that one up to you, but for me and, and after everything I've read in the Bible, I'm pretty sure that I did not choose Christ, but that he has chosen me and has liberated my deceitfully wicked heart. And not just to sit back, but to live. And not just live any way I want to, though I'm free in Christ to do so, but to partake in his ministry of pleading for the afflicted and needy also. Coincidence? Providence, how do you believe? Because if you believe in coincidence, then you're here surely just out of chance. But if you're here by providence, it's because God has a reason for you being here. And that changes everything. See, by chance, you just leave it up. You have no idea what tomorrow holds. By providence, you do know what tomorrow holds because you know what Jesus is trying to do. If Jesus is on mission and everything is by providence, he's picked out this entire way, then you are here today to help what? To help do something, to help serve for his people, to help become a disciple. What, what do disciples do? Well, that's what we're investigating. How do we get there? Well, Jesus is always asking questions. Matter of fact, Jesus has Simon to push the boat out into the water. It's the first question. That's the first thing he does. And this first act of discipleship, as well as every first act of discipleship, starts with obedience. I mean, can you imagine how Simon's life would be different if he told Jesus, you know what? Nope. Can you imagine? His whole life would have been very different. It would have shifted the entire gospel, the entire book of Acts, how the, how the gospel went to the Gentiles first. There'd be no written epistles, no story of him escaping jail, which is like the funniest thing, by the way, right? Y'all know that story, right? I should tell y'all that sometime, man. It's funny. No epistles, no first Peter, no second Peter, none of this. Chance or coincidence? But Peter gets a front row seat to the greatest preacher that ever lived. I mean, can you imagine? Jesus has just asked you to push out uh, on your boat, which is, by the way, if he's a fisherman, so this is like in his wheelhouse. Like, I'm good at this. All right? Not only do I got Jesus on my boat, but I'm like one of the best dudes out here that could have a boat right now for Jesus to be on. And so, like, he pushes out, and while Jesus is preaching, he's just sitting there. Think about this. All the crowd's looking at Peter, too. Like, look at that guy who's getting to sit out there by this guy. Because <laughs> that's what we do. Right? That's what we do. We look, we look at everything while Jesus is talking. I'm listening to Jesus, everything he's saying. Man, look at that guy who gets to sit right next to him. They're also looking at him. They're both looking at, both of them are looking at the crowd. Think about the impression this is making on Peter. This is all changing his life. I mean, not only is he hearing Jesus and he's sitting there looking up, but he's also seeing the effect that Jesus his speech is having upon the people. And Jesus turns to Peter and says, now go out where it's deeper. And again, with another act of obedience. And yet this time it's a little bit more challenging. Because Jesus tells the fishermen 
where to fish. Uh, by the way, I'm going to tell you right now, if you don't hunt and you come tell me where to hunt, I'm going to laugh at you. I'm just saying. So for Jesus to walk up to Peter and, and go, hey, uh, go out deeper, cast your nets down, right? It doesn't make sense. It's odd for Simon, right? This is where pride and opportunity clash. Simon's the fisherman. Does Simon do what he's told or does he school Jesus on how to fish? Because it is what he does. And so let's also point out the obstacles here. The real obstacle that's happening. It's not about fishing. Simon is a professional fisherman. Listening to people that don't fish is not something that's considered wise, by the way, guys. Simon is a businessman also. His time is precious and valuable. He's been out all night. All night, he says. And so what about going home and spending time there? It's not like he doesn't want to. I found often that when Jesus wants to show us something incredible, something life-changing, there are so many personal obstacles we've got to get over, things that are really meaningless in the gravity of the moment. We all make decisions as to the value of that moment as compared to the value of what we already have. So we go, do I go ahead and set out into the deep, which I've already fished and know there ain't nothing out there? Or do I say, hey, man, it was an awesome speech. And I go back and go, man, I could, I could be spending my time right now instead of going something, doing what I know is not going to pan out because I've already been there. And I'm the fisherman, and this guy doesn't know anything about fishing. Carpenters don't make great fishermen. Not in the natural. Right? Think, think about the decision now that he's weighing here. I could go home, or I can set out and go appease this guy by throwing nets into the water where I've been fishing all night and not caught anything. Dude, don't lie. All of you be like, I'm going home. I smell like fish. I'm ready to have my feet washed and be up in the bed. You've been out all night. Is this moment going to be incredible? That's the question. Curiosity and risk are required to find out. Security and comfort rose the boat to shore. Think about that. Let me re repeat that. Curiosity and risk are required to find out what's going to happen. Security and comfort rose the boat to shore. Jesus says, let down your nets. Now, that's sink, sink or swim here, right? Third time to be obedient. Right? You cast out, you listen to the preaching. You go deeper. Second time, you have to say yes to Jesus. Third time now, lay, put your nets out. It's all faith now. Sink or swim here. Do you obey or do you go to shore? And listen here, here's the next one. The, the decision determines the miracle. Do I continue in obedience, though I've seen nothing that's profitable for me to be transformed yet? Right? God's asked him twice to meet him. Like, meet me this way, right? So I meet him. Nothing happens. I need you to step, make one more step of faith and meet me again in this act of obedience. Okay, I step. That's twice now. Ain't nothing happened, God. Right? Now I need you to do it again. Put your nets out. See what's going to happen. Man, I've already listened to you twice, done what you said twice, and we ain't no closer to anything. Matter of fact, we're getting farther from the shore. I'm tired. I smell. I'm ready to go home. Well, look, Peter, he says, we worked hard all last night and didn't catch a thing, but if you say so. Peter's entirely human. His response is that of a child. It's as if he's saying, man, I guess I'll do it. I've already tried it, but uh, there's nothing there. But let me just roll out, I guess. Right? It's kind of sarcastic. You just want to smack him and say, man, do what I say. Right? I mean, like, come on, your kids do that. 
Your kids say stuff like that to you. I guess I'll do it. Just listen. I'm telling you, if you just go do it for one second, you will see what I'm talking about. Ah, I've already tried. Right? Kids are like this all the time. And you want to smack him. Like, shut up. Listen to what he's saying. It's Jesus. Right? Because you, you're, you know, you got your, your armchair quarterback in this scene. You weren't there. But Jesus doesn't say shut up. Jesus doesn't say listen to me. Jesus isn't intimidated by his lack of faith. Though he might grow a bit frustrated. When we get into Luke chapter 9, you're going to see uh, <laughs> the disciples really struggling in their faith to believe they could do miracles that Jesus is saying. And Jesus is actually recorded saying, Oh, faithless generation, how long must I suffer you? Come on, man. Before we think this is harsh, how many times have your kids not believe you only to find out you were right? Parents be like, I told you. How many times? Mom, you don't know. You don't know. You've never been a kid. <laughs> right? We had some kids uh, yesterday lied like I'll get out to get into a place that I work. You know, lied as I'll get out. And you know, and you know how we know they lied? Because we were kids once, too. We lied, too. We snuck in places, yet we did all those things. That's why we're smart about it, because we were just as bad. We don't say that when we're saying that to our kid, right? But we understand. And so we're like parents, right? If you would just listen, you would see that I'm right. And that's Jesus here. But he doesn't say any of those things, right? He waits. He's like patient, right? And listen, it's, I try to relate it to you in that sense because this is the way I see it. This is the way I see it unfolded. But let me make, be really clear. I'm not trying to make God in our image here, but rather show you the humanity in Jesus. He is all God, and yet he is still all man too. He suffered in the same way we suffered, even from ignorant children. By the way, I'm not sure we ever stop being ignorant children. He's still suffering. Next line says, the, the, the time, uh, this time their nets were so full of fish, they begin to tear. The reality of the supernatural is like, it's like hitting a brick wall. It's a euphoria of discovery, isn't it? I mean, we find out there's more that we don't understand and don't know every time we see something supernatural happen. Right? I mean, we can't believe it. If it's supernatural, it's miracle type stuff. And we don't know how that stuff happens. We can't think in our brain how that could even be possible. It must be supernatural. It must be God. That's why we love when miracles take place, because it's a strong reminder that we don't know it all, that there are still some things that are left for discovery. There are still some things out there that require a child's heart to believe, because a child believes in Superman, doesn't he? As far as he's concerned, Superman just only works in New York and doesn't come to Texas. But he's flying somewhere, and he believes with all his heart that they can fly. With all their heart, they believe what they see. When we were little, it's very easy to believe things. You know, that could be the reason statistics say that it's easy to accept Christianity before the age of 12. The highest percentage of people that receive Christ, they do so before the age of 12. It's like 80% of most kids before the age of 12 will receive Christ. That's why children's ministry is so important. So important. Maybe the reason we struggle to live and walk by faith is that we've grown too hardened by life and too wise for our own good. Is that where you are? Can I tell you, I pray all the time, Lord, make me as ignorant as I was when I first started. All the time, man. I wish I didn't know half the stuff I know. You know why? I think I was a better evangelist. Sometimes the brightest fire is the one that burns best. And usually that happens right when you light the match. You ever notice that? 
right when you light the match, man. I can always tell a new believer. Because when the match burns, it burns so bright, it takes up the whole book. The next thing I know, I'll see one person get saved, and they'll bring their whole family and their family's family, and it'll be a whole bunch that'll come in all at once because all it takes is the one match to get lit. Some of us have grown cynical to the storms of life. We believe things get too good to be true because life's hardship has sought to suck out the joy of everything. We even struggle to believe that miracles can be good. You're not the only one, right? Both boats were filled with fish and on the verge of sinking. Now, glass half full or half empty? (laughs) This is a miracle or is this our death? You see what I'm saying? (laughs) Is this a miracle? I think it's a good thing, right? But we're about to die. (laughs) It's, uh, I'm tired. I've been out all night. I just caught more fish than I can do anything with. I had to call in a second boat because there was so much there. I didn't believe it could be possible. This guy, I think, is something great. But, or did he just do this because we're so great of sinners? Because he says he does know we're going to get to that. Uh, did this, is this judgment? Is this the miracle of God in my life? Or is this the judgment of God in my life? If I do what Jesus is asking, we catch nothing, then he's a fraud. I'll look for like a greater fool because I did it. After all, I'm the professional fisherman, not him. That's what I get for listening to a guy who doesn't fish. If I do what Jesus is asking, we could catch so much that it causes the boat to sink and I could die. Either way, both of those don't turn out good for it. Right? But glass half full or half empty. Do you choose risk or do you choose reward? Do you want to go back to your life that you know or do you want to see where the miracle leads? That's the question. There will always be something to worry about. (laughs) There's always going to be something to worry about. But faith requires an element of risk. Faith requires it. Man, if your life isn't challenging, you're not living. You're not living. To follow Jesus, you, it will require risk. And eventually and ultimately, it's going to require everything. We don't teach that enough. I'm, I'm going to beat it at the end, but we don't teach it enough. Simon's starting to get a clear picture about who Jesus is. This is his meeting with Jesus. He's starting to get a clear picture now who Jesus is. It's becoming decision time. What say you? When Simon Peter realized what had happened, he fell to his knees before Jesus. Two things happen when we come face to face with the Son of God. First, we're overwhelmed by our lack of unrighteousness. If you're not, I question if you're saved. When we see our sin before us, when we see our lack of faith, we see our lack of vision, we see our hardened, corrupt heart, we're naked before the Lord. There isn't enough clothing or perfume that can hide us from Him. Secondly, uh, we, we, or our heart is torn into repentance. Those two things are taking places. We seek and desire forgiveness. We hunger and thirst for it. We crave it. The taste of the former is lost. We become like the lost boys and girls of Neverland, hungering for that which is supernatural and unbelievable again. We want to be children again in God, with the Lord. Because all of a sudden we get a taste of the supernatural, the taste of the miracle. And for a second, for just a little bit, we're kids again. There's nothing like a a wonderful Pentecost type altar moment where you see the Holy Spirit make adults do dumb and idiot things. And you're reminded real quick how much God loves children. And the reason I say that is because, man, with all of our strength and all of our intelligence, the one thing that keeps us dumbfounded is the Holy Spirit. We hunger for a world where the impossible is possible once more. 
we become like Peter Pan, who boyishly grinned and confronted with death, said, death, now that'll be an awfully big adventure. My favorite quote. I need to get that on a shirt. I love that. Death, now that will be an awfully big adventure. Is this not the same sound that Paul makes? For me, living means living for Christ and dying is even better. Love this guy. Kill me? Yes. If I live, awesome. Either way, it's a win-win scenario for me. Paul saw death as the prize of living face-to-face with Christ. How do you view death? A lot of people are scared of it. Will it be reward or will you worry? I always tell, I have this kind of thing with the Lord where I always tell him, when you come, I'm going to fight you to the end. You're going to have to break me. I ain't leaving this earth until I'm done. And it's going to be you taking me. And that way, when it's said when I die, I'll have known the greater man won that fight. That'll be how it is. And I was like, that's always my, my challenge to God. Listen, I know he can win, but it'll be fun. Wrestling with God. It'd be like a kid again. I remember having a, I've got a neat little Christmas picture of being a kid, uh, probably like five or six, and my dad being on his knees, and they just bought us boxing gloves for Christmas, right? And my dad is just like pounding on me, man, you know, because he ain't going to lose. I don't care if he is five or six years old. I'm going to tell him. I'm going to nail him, you know. He's got to set that precedence always, you know. And, uh, but, I mean, we're trying with everything we can to just, just take my dad down, you know. Six years old, we believe we can do it, right? Still like a kid in that area. That's why I said we're like the boys and girls in Neverland. I'm still like a kid in that area. I still want to box with Dad. I still want to be face-to-face with him. I still want to do those things with him. What will your reward be? Will you worry? You worry about death. For Simon, it says that he was awestruck. said he was awestruck. Now, this is no simple decision unless your eyes are open to the fullness of who Christ is. Simon had followed just enough to see, just enough to witness, just far enough. And with a few simple acts of obedience, Simon was drawn into the salvation of Christ. I mean, think about it. Two or three decisions later, and he's overwhelmed. The risk that he took on going out, putting his reputation on the line, doing some of those things, now has led him to the place where he absolutely believes and sees Jesus for who he is. And he's blown away. And then all of a sudden, he sees the unrighteousness of his own heart because of it. Oh my gosh, this guy is the Son of God. And if this is true, that means that I am unrighteous and I am holy. And oh my gosh, he's around me. Right? And he's, and he's now face to face with this reality that this is the righteous Son of God and that I am the unrighteous, sinful man. The Holy Spirit had teased his curiosity and pulled on his heart so gentle that Simon never saw the hook. Oh, see, the fish wasn't what God was after. He was after Simon. And see, by a little bit of questions here and there, God began to ask him those questions. Go a little further out. What are you, you going to do? Okay, I'll, I'll go a little farther out. Throw the net in the water. All right, I'll do that. Little by little, God was setting the hook. Couldn't see it happening, but it was happening. Because he's so gentle. He's a... He didn't put fish in the boat so Simon could become a wealthy man. He didn't bless Simon because he was a good man. Simon himself testifies against the thought. Jesus was looking for disciples that would carry his cause past him. 
He was looking for those who had a clear, defining look into their own hearts and were fully aware of their inadequacy and unrighteousness. How do we know this? Because it says as soon as they landed, they left everything and they followed Jesus. Well, wait a minute. He didn't say the sinner's prayer. Well, wait a minute. I don't see any kind of like altar moment. When did he kneel down and like give his life to Jesus and we all like hugged him? When is this big kumbaya moment happen? I'm going to tell you right now. The evidence of his transformed life is the proof of his salvation. It says he left everything. Why? Did Jesus ask him to? Did Jesus ask him to leave everything behind here? No. But it kind of seems expected, doesn't it? Jesus became their life, their ministry, their calling, their hope by leaving everything. It says a lot about the value that they placed on him. Being with Jesus was more important than any material thing that they could have enjoyed or owned. He was their life and their most valuable possession. They simply were hanging on to what they valued, which was him. Three years later, what did they do when it was all said and done? They started to go back to their old life before he was resurrected and renewed. And then what did they do? They, they left everything old again and went right back into Jesus. Except the second time around, they knew they weren't going to make that mistake again. So when he ascended, what did they do? They all held together because Jesus said he was coming back. And they believed him. He had already come back once. They believed he might come back a second time. They assembled in the upper room. They stood together in prayer. They prayed together in unity. How do we know they're in unity? Because look at what happened in Acts. Look at the amount of prayer that pulled down the Holy Spirit and allowed the Comforter to wreck Jerusalem, wreck Asia Minor, wreck Europe all the way to here. Twelve men who left everything to follow God in some form or fashion, just like this. They are, they are only disciples. Let me get that through you again. I know we put them up on the pedestal. They're the great 12. They're all, they were human beings. I mean, we see Peter get in trouble all the time. Peter at, some, at one point is called the devil, right? You know, because you've probably been that kid who's been called the devil by your own parent, right? That's why we relate to Peter so much, man. Peter is like the expression of our humanity, right? He's asking questions here. I've been out all night, man. But if you want me to cast an edge, I'll cast an edge. And you just want to go, I'm going to knock that sarcastic face right off you. <laughs> I made it, and I can take it away, right? I mean, he's Jesus. <laughs> Some of you know, I brought you into this world. I can, t I can take you out. And I will live. I will just walk over the storm that floats you down. But no, he didn't like any of that. He looked for people who would carry his cause past him. It's not some big ceremony. There's the, only, the only thing that we see is a transformed life. I don't have to wonder whether Peter believed or whether he said some prayer that made him believe. I saw it in his life. He left everything and he followed after Christ. Now the question that presents to you, are you willing to do the same? Because make no mistake, that is what Jesus asked you all the time. Sure, does Jesus care if you have a house? He, man, listen, man, he's all for you having a house. He's all for you having things. He's all for all those things. When they come between his mission and him, it becomes idolatry. It becomes a thing he becomes wickedly jealous about. And you want to talk about God getting jealous. God gets jealous. And idolatry is a very serious thing to him. It's hard to discover those things. I would tell you pray, or fast. You ever want to figure out what the idols are in your life? Fast. What do you think you do more than anything? If you're on your phone, 
shut that thing off for a month. Let's see how hard you last. If it's your TV or anything like that, shut it off. Shut the internet off. See how far you last. You know, guys, we used to not have it. I know it's hard to believe. It's hard to believe, but it's true. I remember we just had one phone in the whole house. And you had a 70-foot cord. That thing could go through three acres, man. You could still be on the phone. That's how it was. He asked Peter, he said, what say you? Where you at? If I ask you to do this, are you going to do this? And they'll always stop or start with something simple. So before you get to celebrate, until you see the transformation of the miracle, listen, it'll always start as something simple. Well, can I grab this boat and can we get in it and just row me out a little bit so I can preach to these people? Okay. Yeah, okay. Will you go out deeper? All right. Starting to get a little pushy. Will you cast your nets into the place where you've spent all night fishing already? Well, that would be dumb. And before you cast it off, it's just bad stewardship. Remember who's asking. Sometimes God will ask you to do things that confound the wise. That's called faith. He doesn't think like we do. And you can't make him. You don't get to mold him in your image. You can't make him think like you do. God can take a place that's been barren and dry and make it the wettest place on earth. He can take the place that he's been fishing for a long time and it's a dead hole and make it full of fish. That's what faith does, but it takes obedience to get there, guys. And it takes obedience to leave everything behind and follow Jesus and love him to that degree. I don't have to present to you, do you love Jesus in your heart? I don't have to say those things. What I do know is this, what I, and this, is, this is, comes from living through the power of the Holy Spirit. I, there don't have to be an altar call for somebody to get saved. When Peter preached, it said 3,000 came to the Lord. That wasn't an altar call, guys, in the book of Acts. Well, how do we know if they were saved? Did we get their card? Did we get their information so we could call them back and make sure that they came to church every week? That, funny, right? Isn't it funny? You ever ask yourself any of these questions? Why doesn't the church look like the church of the Bible? You ever ask yourself any of that? How come we need so much information to make sure you're saved? Like, what's it matter to me in all honesty? You think I'm going to have to answer for you in heaven? Mm-mm. I'm going to tell you what we teach our teenagers, what we teach our children. They are responsible for themselves. When they stand up in heaven, man, you think you're not going to be able to say, well, my mom and dad, you, you made some rough people, God, and put me in with some rough people, and I'm gonna, you're not going to be able to say it. Well, that pastor, he never told me exactly how I said the words. <laughs> he never called me back because I only showed up one Sunday, and he didn't call me back, so I never went again. <laughs> you think God's going to, I mean, come on, man. I'm going to tell you right now, some of you that go to church all the time and you're stuck on, well, I go to church all the time and I think I'm doing pretty good. Uh, there's going to be people in heaven that didn't go to church hardly at all on being there. Amen. Because they love Jesus with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, man. And they were doing ministry in their own home and leading people to Christ. Man, I can tell you people that are around here in Marble Falls that just do home groups. Just do home groups. And can I tell you, like I think I said this last week, it's the home church that scared the heck out of Rome out of all the priests in Jerusalem, it's the home church that's the reason you're here today. Well, Pastor Jim, you better shut that up because, man, how is Mosaic going to do this? Or how is Mosaic? I don't care about all that. What I care about is the kingdom of God moving forward. Whatever that takes place. If God says tomorrow to take down Mosaic and we don't need a name and we just need to be a home church, that's where I'm going to go. That's what I'm going to do. I'm, I'm, I'm not loyal to you above my loyalty to God. I don't need a building, and I don't need a church, and I don't need to do worship, and I don't need to preach, and I don't do any of those things. What I want to do more than anything is love on Jesus. And as long as I've been loving on Jesus, one thing he has told me is love my people. 
probably the most heavenly thing we could do and the most godliest thing we can do is serve God's people and love them as well like he loves them. That's a transformed life. We'll see it. We'll witness to people. They'll ask us, because of our love towards each other, they will ask us where that comes from. And that will present you your opportunity to be bold. Man, it comes from Jesus. Because I love him so much, I see everything through his eyes. Because I see everything through his eyes, I see your brokenness. And I have mercy for it. Because I see everything through his eyes, I, I, I see how messed up that the world and how cynical you've become because the world has poured so much pain in on you. But because I see through the eyes of Jesus, man, I see how you need grace and mercy more than anybody else right now. And what I need to do is just be an ear and not a voice. How many people I just wait? I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm waiting on them. I'm praying for them. I'm like, oh, God's going to get you because I've been praying. I'm next to you. I'm going to, mm-hmm. Well, wait a minute, Pastor. They, they got, you know, some language in their tongue and uh, they don't sound all saved. Man, I didn't sound all saved at one time. <laughs> God loved me anyway. I'm here to tell you, you ain't perfect, but God loves you anyway. God loves you anyway. Will you stand to your feet and pray with me real quick? While I'm doing that, will, will somebody, uh, will you, um, well, no, we're going to have you. Miss Wendy, will you grab Joy and have her come in here? And if there's anybody else that's going to be in camp, yeah, Reagan. If they all need to come back in, maybe they all need to come back in. So let's we're gonna we're gonna pray for those that are going to camp on Monday. And you can come up here and you can lay a hand on somebody's shoulder. You can pray from right where you're at, either way. No chokeholds or karate chops. Yeah. You gotta you can do youth ministry, that happens. That happens. Come on, up front. Mm-hmm. Let me embarrass you. We're all going to point fingers when you get up here. <laughs> yeah, Miss Joy hadn't been feeling well, so we definitely need to lay hands on her. Yeah, if you want to come pray for something, we need people's hands. Come pray. And if you don't want to, that's fine too. It's not, nothing weird's going to happen. Nobody's going to go crazy or blow up. We're just agreeing with them in prayer. So let's just pray for these guys. Father, right now, Lord, you know the, all the, the, the things that come with going to camp, the nervousness, uh, Lord, the just being tired and wore out, God, emotions being uh, stretched thin. Father, Lord, I would pray right now that uh, you would just b- begin to, to pour out a supernatural strength on all those that are going, God, that you would open their minds this week, God, to meet you in a new way, God, that when you present opportunity to be obedient, that they will be obedient. They will say yes, God, to the questions you ask, Lord. They will risk. They will bear the risk of faith, God. And they will believe for great and mighty things, Lord, to be seen in their life and in all those who are going to be at camp, God. Father, I pray for all the leaders that are there, the uh, Lord, the, the, the pastor who's going to be speaking, God, the, the worship team that's going to be playing, God. May you pour out your spirit upon them as well. Send them a timely word, God. A timely word, God. May it speak to our hearts and to our innermost, God. Father, may we be the examples you've called us to be to others while we're there and serve and love others while we're there. 
Father, we thank you for all this, and we trust you for the safety of things, God, for as we travel the three hours there and back, God, that, Lord, you will make everything just go smooth, and that we will have favor while we were there, God. Lord, I thank you for the camp, Lord, and all that they do towards bringing uh, uh, young people to know you, God. We just thank you, Lord, and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Guys, thank you. Uh, we love you this morning. Um, love you. <laughs>